Hello and welcome to the Sage Space. You know, it's a really awful reality that you have to sort of accept when you're a parent who's dealing with an illness is that you can't protect your children from it. But you can use it as a teaching opportunity. You can use it to help them understand emotions, to understand a bit more about the world and how we adjust and how we manage. And that can be a really positive thing for families. Post-cancer, I wanted to create a space to have conversations with the many creative people who offered up their knowledge and wisdom of how to move through this challenging time. Often practical, definitely insightful, and always infused with optimism, these conversations are a joy to share. As the designer Alan Moore says, the act of creating something of beauty is a way of bringing good into the world. Infused with optimism, it says simply, life is worthwhile. It's been a while since I've posted an episode of The Sage Space, but today my guest is psychologist Elaine White. I was put in touch with Elaine when the wheels were well and truly falling off the machine. My parents were looking after my kids whilst my dad was unwell. My husband was still working in Paris and I was going through chemotherapy. As many people can relate, it was a tough time. Like all parents, I was really worried about how my three boys were. At that time, they were about three, five and eight years old. I had no idea what was going through their minds or whether they understood what was going on. So when I got in touch with Elaine, a general psychologist specialising in paediatrics, as well as reassuring me things would turn out okay, she was also able to give me some invaluable advice about how kids can behave in times of stress and trauma. She pointed me in the direction of books to read, material that might help them. As she said, you can't protect your children from these incredibly difficult times in life. But what you can do is make sure you're gently feeding in the relevant information. And often, the emotional bonds created within a family can play such a positive role in their future lives. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the Sage Space podcast. The first question I like to ask people um, is how they've made or found space for themselves this morning or during the day what's what's the sort of first thing you do to, to to kind of make a bit of space to set yourself up for the day well i think what's really important is that you kind of maintain what i call your morning commute so for me i make time for a little walk a cup of coffee if i'm working from home if i'm going into work then i sort of still have that space so we're all different i always need a little bit of what i call processing time or thinking space in the morning and that's what helps me have a good day. And is that quiet time with the radio off and everything like that? Or is, is, is it just as you're, as you're sipping on your morning cup of coffee? Yeah, I don't have the radio on or anything. It, you know, it is thinking time. It's just about allowing my thoughts to shuffle through. Um, sometimes I'm thinking of jobs or lists, but there's no, I don't structure it. It's literally me with my cup of coffee or me on a little walk just allowing my mind to organise itself before I start working or doing whatever I need to do that day. Is this, is this something you, you advise to your clients? Um, I think if you're working from home, you really should hold on to what I call your commuting time. So, you know, go for a walk before you start work or, you know, do some meditation or listen to the news, whatever it is that you would normally do to set yourself up for the day. Don't allow yourself to lose that because you're working from home. And then equally important is that sort of decompression time in the evening. And it doesn't have to be long, you know, it might be just 20 minutes or 30 minutes, but try to create boundaries between 
work, family, leisure, so that it's not all blurring into one. Because I think the difficulty is when you're in the same environment, it's very easy to lose that structure. Yeah, and we would you say we we tend to thrive a bit more in, with, with a bit of structure? Yes, it's it's a bit boring, and we don't like to think of it like that. But human beings always benefit from routine. It really helps our brain to have cues to know what's coming up. If your brain knows what you're about to do or what is about to happen, it's not going to fire off those anxiety centers. So that's why routines are so reassuring and comforting. And why as parents, we're always desperately trying to create them for our children, but you really need to make sure you're creating for them and for yourself as adults as well. But then what happens when there's a spanner thrown into the works? How do we cope with that? Well, I always say that what you need is your foundation routine. So these are your basics that you do every day, you know, which are your hopefully feeding yourself and getting some sleep and, you know, a bit of exercise. And the rest of the stuff is all the good extra stuff that you add in on a good day. And on a bad day, when the spanner comes in, you still have your foundation routine, which means that even if maybe you're not doing your meditation at 10 o'clock, you're still going to do your lunch and your dinner and your afternoon walk. So I always say try to sort of stack your routine. So even on the worst day possible, you're still going to achieve these basics. Before before we start talking about the, mm. the cancer side of your work, I just wondered, I mean, yeah. what, what are the big um, concerns that you're seeing at the moment that people have? I mean, we're, we're living in very uncertain mm. times. Um, there is no normal. Um, no. Change is the only word that is really prominent at the moment. Nothing's nothing's predictable, mm. nothing's usual. What are, yeah. what are the concerns and worries that you're that you're seeing your um, patients come to you with well I think you know the obvious one is anxiety you know whether that's about jobs or family or children or you know parents well-being you know people have a lot of anxiety and I think we're also now at the stage in the pandemic where people are experiencing fatigue because their anxiety has been operating at such a high level for such a long time and I think what's important to remember is that fatigue is normal it's your your brain's way of trying to protect you or trying to slow you down because it's kind of saying you know I can't keep operating at this level so you know recognizing that and I think you really need to be compassionate to yourself nobody is going to be as efficient as they were it's going to take you a lot longer to do things and you sort of need to adjust and realize that you know, so, you know, whereas before you might have managed a whole list of things in a day, you probably can't do that now just because your brain is tired, you're tired, you know, keeping the behaviors going is a lot more effort. So you kind of have to lean into your behaviors, but at the same time, do it with compassion and recognize that maybe some of your goals aren't realistic and you just need to scale it back to what's necessary and what's important. And then I think acceptance is really important. You know, for some people it is accepting that now is a financially difficult time or now is a time when relationships are under strain. So what can you do to support yourself with that? You know, there's no point pretending that you can make this, you know, the time when you're going to learn fluent Chinese, for example. I know that some people get very upset that they're not doing what maybe they see other people doing on social media or what they were doing before. And this is where I think you have to be realistic. You have to be compassionate and you have to recognize whether or not you're able to voice it, you will be experiencing anxiety. It will be affecting you pretty much every day. 
you know it will be affecting your sleep your energy level so be compassionate and be realistic yeah you're right there is a sense of real fatigue and everyone yeah it's, it's that sort of end of term state that doesn't seem to end <laughs> yeah yeah you know and maybe that's that you take a couple of days off you know maybe that you recognize that for the next couple of days your house isn't going to look immaculate or maybe you recognize that you know your bedtime with the children has got you know completely derailed and it's just about taking a breath being compassionate and going okay let's start with one thing let's start with getting back to my basic routine and then we'll see if we can reboot those energy levels it's about managing our energy levels this is this is a marathon you know it's not over any time soon and even you know when we do begin to come out of the pandemic we're going to have all the stuff to sort out so you know try to think of it like that pleasure is really important so bring pleasure into your daily routine and be kind to yourself yeah really really a lot lot to to take away from that and to think about Mm -hmm. and for your work i mean is is most of your work um with cancer patients i think as a psychologist you never really work in one field and obviously i've worked in different areas and even now you know i work in cancer part-time and then i work in adult and family psychology the other time so yeah it's always a bit of a mixed bag and that's part of why i enjoy what i do um but i always think it's really important that you know if you are listening to this or coming to this with a cancer diagnosis to recognize that you're not just cancer there's a lot more to you and, a, you know, the other aspects of your identity or other things that are going on in your life may actually be more important or more dominant. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's really interesting to, to point out. I mean, I think when I when I think back to when I was um, diagnosed, so I, I was living in Argentina with my family. Um, so we were working over there and we had to, had to move back um, very quickly. I mean, we thought we were coming back for two weeks and then we... Mm-hmm. We were not going back at all. Um, but when I first started, um, you know, some, some sessions, some counselling sessions, I mean, it was just all the extraneous stuff that I mm. had to get my head around. Finding kids, finding schools for the kids, you know, thinking about how we were going to move out of our house. I mean, the actual cancer per se didn't really come into the equation until I would say quite a few sessions down the line it was everything else that I needed to sort of sort out. And I guess that's, that's, that's probably what, what perhaps what you see is, is, is it's that initial shock that then turns everyone's world totally upside down. Yeah. I mean, I think it's different for everybody. And I always say, try not to compare yourself. So some people, they do have the initial shock at the diagnosis. Um, They process that shock and then they get to what I call the new normal. You know, they go through that adjustment period. For some people, they just go straight into treatment and it's only after they finish treatment, sometimes years down the line, that they actually realize they haven't even accepted the fact that they have the diagnosis in the first place. So, you know, there's no rules to this. Some people process immediately. Some people take a long time because denial is very protective. You know, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Distraction equally is not necessarily a bad thing. These are all ways that we're trying to cope with a very traumatic and difficult situation. So if you can't process the diagnosis or it feels really surreal, even the whole time you're in treatment, 
that's a normal response it's your response so it's difficult because you know we do see patients who do adapt really well but that's not necessarily for everybody and i think what's really important to recognize is your sort of well-being state when you get the diagnosis so you know if you're in a place in life where you're well supported everything's going well then the chances are you're going to have more resources to cope with a diagnosis but if you're in a situation where maybe there are some challenges going on in life maybe you weren't in a good place anyway not happy in your job moving countries for example you've already got challenges when you get the diagnosis so what's important is you know to remember that the part of the brain that we're accessing when we're doing talking therapy or art or writing is our prefrontal cortex this is the most sophisticated part of our brain and it's the bit of our brain that integrates the rest of the system in our brain. So what's happening with the prefrontal cortex is where we get to rationalize, think through things, make sense of what's happening. So I always say, you know, if you're not someone who benefits from talking, then are you someone who likes drawing or, you know, using software on a computer to create imagery or photography or writing? you know, hence the journaling. So in a way, it's just about finding a means that accesses that the processes that run in our prefrontal cortex that are going to help your brain sort out what is happening. And, you know, sometimes nonverbal therapies are really helpful because it can be very, very hard to put into words our experiences. And maybe it's just a color or an image that comes to mind. And sometimes, you know, it doesn't have to be you know, a professional or an expert that we're seeing. You know, I often say, if you've got a good support network, then you can manage a lot of the things that happen to you in life. So, you know, if you're someone and you think, well, do you know what, I'm already talking to my friends and family. Okay, that's, that's really good. Carry on, you know. And it's only when maybe you're not feeling that you can express yourself honestly because you're caring about how other people are feeling or maybe you want to talk to someone outside of your friends and family, but coming in to see someone like myself gives you that separate time and space. But what I would say is that everybody needs to do something. You know, cancer diagnosis or not, you, you know, we all need to find a way to process our experiences in life. So whether it's a journal, whether it's formal counseling, you know, whether it's a cup of coffee with a friend every week, you need to support your brain because it's having to make sense of a lot of things that are happening to you. But a lot of it comes down to you recognizing and accepting your vulnerability and asking for help and seeing that as a strength. You know, it, it takes a lot of strength to be aware of your emotional state because the reason why we work as what we call a multidisciplinary team in cancer is because we know we need to look after the whole person and not just the whole person but the whole person's partner the whole person's family the whole person's children so yes it may not seem obvious it may not be easy to access services and yes do we need more of course but for you as the individual patient i would really encourage you to ask for help and persevere in getting it yeah it is making that first step isn't it to ask for a bit of direction it is, is invaluable. One of the things I really, uh, um, I mean, I found quite tricky was talking to my kids about 
um, a diagnosis. I mean, at that mm. time, my so my youngest was three, so I had a three, five, and an eight-year-old. Um, I mean, we, as I said earlier, we were moving countries, so we had no choice but to tell them what was going on. But what do you? I mean, every situation is very different. How much should we tell children, or how much? can we share them without really worrying them unnecessarily? I mean, I think, you know, every parent is the best expert on their child, but it's really important that you're honest and transparent because children see everything. You know, even if they're just noticing that you're stressed and anxious, children make sense of the world through their parents. So, you know, by your behaviours, they know whether they're under threat or not, or whether they're safe or not. So, you know, think about the age of your child, think about where they are in terms of their understanding. And it's about giving information, not in a way that scares them, but so that they understand what's happening. And I always think it's really important to remember that you as the patient or as the partner, you're getting drip fed the information as you go along the process. And you sort of need to replicate that for children, you know, because it's, it's kind of unfair, which I know may be a challenging word for people to hear, to expect a child not to hit anything for maybe six months and then suddenly hear something. Because us, maybe as the patients or the partner, we've been hearing everything for those six months and we're beginning to adjust. You do need to allow children time to adjust just as we do for ourselves. So, you know, it's those what I call, well, maybe not so much anymore, but what we used to call back of the car seat conversations where you're just drift feeding bits of information. And, you know, for example, with your three-year-old, it might just start out as mummy's unwell mummy's sick and maybe that's enough for now but with your eight-year-old you probably use the word cancer maybe even with your five-year-old so it's just thinking about where they're at developmentally and what's appropriate them you know children are curious about death so they are going to ask about it and you know we shouldn't be surprised that a four-year or five-year-old will ask us if we're going to die and we know by the time a child's about seven-ish, around about then, they have a concept of them dying. So it's really important that, and this is really difficult, but that we don't pretend that those things aren't sort of in the minds of our children because they're looking at the world, they're experiencing it. And they may know more than you realise and we don't want them holding on to those worries. We want them sharing them, you know, so it's about giving permission. It's about saying, you know, do you have any questions for my doctor today? Or do you have any questions you want to ask me? Or I don't know this yet, but I promise I will tell you when I do. Yeah, and I think um, it, it's it's quite a scary word for kids because they hear, hear about the word cancer, you know, and, and it is always associated somewhat negatively, um, probably for obvious reasons. It can be challenging to find a way to to talk about it in a sort of open but not really terrifying way for them. Yeah, and I think this is where it is about allowing normality. So, you know, it might be that when you have the conversation, your eight-year-old, I'm, gonna, I'm using your children as an example, because of the ages, but, you know, correct me if that doesn't help, that your eight-year-old gets upset or you get upset and your eight-year-old gets upset. And I would say that's okay. That's a normal response. And it's about saying, you know, it's all right if you're sad or it's all right if you're crying. Mummy cried too when she heard. 
I've got a really good team of doctors. They're giving me good medicine. And I'm going to, you know, we're going to keep talking about what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe your three-year-old doesn't really understand what's happening, but is a bit more aggressive in their behaviors or just needs more hugs or crawls into bed with you to sleep. So just give that reassurance. Mm -hmm. You know, they're just checking that you're okay. So allow that checking in to, to happen. You know, it's a really awful reality that you have to sort of accept when you're a parent who's dealing with an illness is that you can't protect your children from it but you can use it as a teaching opportunity you can use it to help them understand emotions to understand a bit more about the world and how we adjust and how we manage and that can be a really positive thing for families yes and, and, and i remember you saying to me that um particularly with younger kids um they may start to experience emotions f sooner than they would do in, in perhaps a sort of normal environment growing up. So, mm -hmm. so perhaps, you know, as a five-year-old, their experience, you know, their their experience may be a bit more anger or a bit more sadness or questioning death, as you, as you said. And and they're they're going through all these emotions perhaps earlier than they would do deve development in a normal developmental situation. Yeah, and I think that's where like I said it can be an opportunity so it's about not dismissing the emotions not trying to fix them but just educating them so how do we have anger you know do you put together a little anger toolbox that they go to when they're having those feelings so they can express anger in a safe way you know do you as a family discuss what anger rules are you know and generally speaking we don't hurt ourselves we don't hurt others we don't hurt property um so it is about doing I guess what I would call psychoeducation about bringing that notion of worries of feelings of talking through things and you can use it to create sort of new family routines so is it that every week you sit down and you know you have a worry jar and the worries get pulled from the jar that everyone's put into that week and you talk through them or do you have an emotion tree in the kitchen where everyone puts a little emoticon of their feeling that day so you're kind of touching base and i would say this is all really good stuff that in the ideal world we would be doing anyway because emotional education is so important in life that it's often the, the thing that we only think about when stuff goes wrong so you know the cancer diagnosis is horrible but maybe as a family we can learn to develop communication skills that are going to help our children for the rest of their life or for example for yourself you know it brought in meditation, which is a great life skill to have, you know? So maybe you start doing mindfulness or meditation practices as a family, and that's a great skill to give to your children. So it's scary and it's awful and you wish it wasn't happening and it's traumatic at times, but there's also really helpful things that can come out of it as a family. And I'm not pretending it's easy because it's not, but this is where I think it's really important to be compassionate to yourself as a parent and to be confident. You're doing the best you can and it's okay. If you say the wrong thing, you can fix it because your mum, because your dad, it's going to be okay. You're going to work your way through it. If your child is scared, it's okay. You're going to be able to soothe them. You're not going to be able to necessarily take away the fear but you can be with them through it. I think that's a really um, helpful way of, of, of looking at 
these situations that come up in life as, as an opportunity to reframe things, to, to, to see things from a different perspective. And I, I certainly feel that's what one gains with talking things through with someone who's perhaps not always in your family, because they can help you reframe things in a different way. But in the long run, you could have you you, you know you could could have a family who are much more emotionally in touch, or much closer, or can express their themselves better as a result. So it's not a hugely negative situation or totally negative situation. Yeah, and you know it's interesting that you say that because obviously how you frame it as the parent is how the children are going to frame it. So if you show your child that yes I've got cancer but look at you know I'm finding a way to live with it and that's also teaching them about what happens when you face difficulties and you know it's that it's that golden egg that we're always looking for in life which is resilience and you know learning that when things go wrong learning that when we fail an exam or learning that when we get ill that there is a way through it I mean that's that's what we're always looking for because we know what adult life faces <laughs> us with. So, you know, I mean, look, it, it's really tough situation. And there are some days where, I don't know, it's not going to work out. Let's just put it like that. But then hopefully there will be those moments where you're really connecting with your child or, you know, you have those wonderful moments where there is that emotional intimacy and depth. And that can be really powerful and really restorative. You know, there's a healing quality to love, which I think is important to yeah, give yeah. energy to. I mean, I think it it, it makes me laugh in a in, uh, in in a way that I can with quite a lot of distance because I mean, I think my children saw the wheels well and truly fall off the whole machine, <laughs> mm. and yeah, I mean, it wasn't pretty. Yeah. I and I can laugh about it now because it really was not a pretty a pretty sight, but. Um, there's that distance now as well that you can, and if you can kind of look at something with a bit of humor now and 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 learn from it, then it then it makes a hell of a lot of difference, I think. So, um, and and as you say, that life does not go according to plan by any stretch of the imagination, and kids can really really learn a lot from that. Yeah, and you know, I think the important thing to remember is that not all trauma results in traumatic injury. Yes. You know, so yes, it could be traumatic, but maybe it can also be okay. And, you know, I'm not dismissing trauma because, you know, we also know that cancer patients can experience post-traumatic stress disorder and children can experience that as well. But, you know, that's when it's important to access services and to recognize that things aren't what they were, but also you probably have more capability and resources as a family than you realise. Yes, yes, I think that's um, that's very good advice. Um, I mean, Elaine, perhaps I'll ask you, you know, we can, you can give me details at the end, but I mean, if people do feel they need to seek some form of professional help, where, where, would, you, where would be your first point of call? So I guess, you know, think about the relationships that you have with people who are looking mm -hmm. after your treatment. So your consultant, your oncologist, or it might be your surgeon or uh, your radiotherapist, or it could be your clinical nurse specialist, or, you know, even just 
you know, the person who books you in when you go into clinic, whoever it is that you're connecting with, tell them that you're struggling. You know, you can also do more formal things. You know, you can request a referral to psychological services to your GP, you know, or you can call up, you know, a charity like Macmillan or Maggie Centres and ask for help. You know, also the other resource to really remember is if you've got a cancer diagnosis. And I know this is scary for some people, but in the UK in particular, you're entitled to access services in hospices once you've got a diagnosis. So, you know, hospices do have therapeutic services, so that might be a really good option for you. So, you know, think about who you connect with, who you feel safe with, voice your concerns, and then take it from there. GPs are really good resources as well. And then, you know, for some people, you know, for example, if you're part of a religious community, that might be the place you go to. I think as a parent, a really good resource is schools. You know, even now with remote learning, let your teacher or the nursery worker know what's going on in the family because they can do so much for your child. You know, even just the extra checking in can make a massive difference. So that's where I'm saying sort of think about your system, think about who you connect with, and think about does everybody who needs to know know about what's going on and who can I talk to? Yeah, I mean, I, I remember the kids' scores were, were incredible and you know, the headmistress really took them under her wing and got them to talk about things that I think they were they were really struggling with and staff were aware. Mm. And I think that was a, an enormous, um, you know, enormous... It, it provided the kids with so much support and I think a really safe environment. They felt very safe and and able to talk what was talk through what was going on going on in their minds you know that they were very angry you know i mean one point the headmistress told us that she'd had them in her study and they were all saying how angry they were what well, the two elder ones were and mm. but, but that but they were worried about saying to me that they were angry but they wanted to but they clearly had it in their minds that they felt it was wrong to be angry but of course it wasn't wrong to be angry and isn't wrong to be angry so I think you're right the school schools are a great a great start as well yeah and anger is always difficult isn't it but it's perfectly normal for children to be angry at their mum or dad for having cancer you know and your partner may be angry at you for getting cancer you may be angry at you for getting cancer so yeah try not to be afraid of the feelings which can at times feel impossible try to be curious be curious about what's going on and what's happening and maybe why yeah, that's great. Now, um, you've answered so many questions, and it, like there's there's so much to take away, I think, from everything we've talked about. But I wanted to ask you just a couple of um, a couple of questions about books, um, and whether you might be able to share with us a book, firstly that you've really found helpful. Um, and perhaps when you recommend to, to, to people listening, if, if, if they need a bit of help with trying to sort through stuff that's going on in, on in their minds. Yeah, I mean, it depends, you know, if we're talking about mm -hmm. children or adults. I mean, I think that some of the resources for children that are really helpful aren't naturally cancer-related. You know, it's more around this emotional education. Um, I can't remember the author, so I might have to give you that information later, but there's a book called... A Huge Bag mm -hmm. of Worries, which is about a little girl carrying around her worries and about what she does with them and how she shares with them. And it's a really helpful book. You know, it touches on things like body image as well as, you know, other worries. So it's a useful book 
that you can use as a tool. There's also an emoticon series, which I think is by someone called Brian Moses and Mike Gordon. And they go through single emotions like I feel sad, I feel angry, I feel jealous. And they're just little storybooks. And, you know, what's so helpful with those type of books is that, you know, with children, we never want to go at something directly because that's too overwhelming. But, you know, by these little stories, it's kind of exploring how we might be feeling. And, you know, we're not saying that your child is feeling that. We're saying that these characters in the story, this is what's happening to them. But I think it's, you know, it creates a very good framework for a parent to use to bring in this, you know, like I said, psychoeducation. And also it's not focusing on the cancer. It's just focusing on the feelings that are happening around it. So I think those are very helpful. And then, you know, think about, you know, particularly with adolescents, they want more information. So think about good resources for them, you know, safe places for them to go. Macmillan, for example, if you go onto their website, they have a list of resources for adolescents. They have links through to online groups, you know, where teenagers can sort of talk to each other. So do think about the age of your child, where they're at, the fact that, you know, a teenager or an adolescent, they're going to want some independence in accessing the information, but give them access to those links that you know are safe and helpful. And, you know, be straightforward. You know, say to your teenager, look, you could go and Google, but it's going to scare you. The information you get may not be appropriate to what's going on with me. Here are some links that I think you may find useful. Go and have a look at these. You know, so... It's about respecting developmental age and where people are at. And I'm just trying to think what else might be helpful. There are some really good sort of uh, self-help books as well. So if you're into cognitive behavioral therapy, which you know lots of people have heard about, then you can look for books which sort of access those tools and you can do them yourself. I'm just trying to think of the name of it. I think there's Mind Over Mood is one of the really well-known ones. And again, have a little explore, see if it works for you. I mean, the good thing is now is that you can see a lot of these books online before you purchase them. So just have a little explore. And then there are some workbooks, again, on CBT for teenagers. So, you know, if you don't want to see someone like myself, if you want to do a bit more of the sort of self-guiding route, think about books that are accessing the tools it doesn't have to have the Absolutely. word cancer on it yeah i think that's i think that's that really sense? really great yeah. advice now to finish up um elaine i would love to ask you what what's the sagest piece of advice you've ever been given i think to be compassionate to yourself to be honest because i think when we're going through difficulties it's so easy to be angry and to be frustrated that, you know, you probably need to express it, but it's not going to help you move forward. So it is about really being kind to yourself and others, you know, recognizing that someday things are going to fall apart and it's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. It doesn't mean you're failing. It's okay. You know, if maybe you can't get out of bed, but don't pretend that that's not happening. Be kind enough to yourself to recognize that isn't you that something else is going on or you need some help. Because I think when we're compassionate, 
we are more likely to get help. We're more likely to be honest about what's going on and to be okay with that. And really, that's the struggle with mental health. The sooner you get help, the more can be done and the less you're going to suffer. So, you know, I think that's why being compassionate is so key. Is there a piece of advice that you've been given that's really served you? Well, I think apart from the compassion, which I think is the best advice I've ever been given, it's also to be selfish, you know? And I think there are different cultural references, different gender references to this, but it's actually okay to look after yourself. You know, it is about remembering you have to put the oxygen mask on yourself in life before you can help anybody else. You're not helping yourself or your family or your friends if you allow yourself to fall apart, to struggle. So be compassionate, be selfish, don't see it necessarily as a bad thing. And you probably stand a better chance of getting through difficulties than otherwise. Great, that's a great, great thing to finish on. Thank you very, very much for your time, Elaine. It's been really lovely to chat to you. You as well. Thank um, you very and much. I, I will write in, in kind of a, the show notes and um, on my site how people could get in touch with you and perhaps a few other resources that might, like some of the books. Yeah, we can put together. Yeah, very happy to put together a list with the, with the authors once I can that <laughs> Thank you very much, Elaine. I've posted a list of the books and resources Elaine recommends in the show notes. As Elaine points out, support for kids can come from so many different directions. I can say without a shadow of a doubt, I was so fortunate to have my kids' grandparents to look after and nurture them during this difficult time. And my parents have often so graciously said it was a privilege to have that precious time with their grandchildren, even though the house needed a repaint when we finally moved out 18 months later. And as ever, thank you to my music-making friend, Julia Ross. Thanks a lot for listening. Until next time.